When my kids were little, I would come home from a trip, maybe if I'd been gone a week or so, and then I would usually bring them something, and they sort of knew that. And so I'd show up at the front door, Daddy's home! You know, I would get that even normally, but this would be even more exciting because they knew, you know, something's up. And, and they wouldn't ask right away, but I'd come into the living room, haul in my luggage, and they would all be kind of running around. And then they would be kind of waiting and waiting. And, and pretty soon one of them would say, did you bring us anything? You know, and you feel like saying, I'm here. What you need stuff for? It's me, your dad. But of course, that's not what they were looking for. And I'd usually downplay it and maybe act like I didn't bring them anything. But then as they would sort of sometimes follow me into the bedroom and watch me unload my luggage, pretty soon here it comes. A couple things that I would get for them. And uh, that's a little bit like what we're going to talk about today. We are in John chapter 6. And you're going to be thrilled to know this is the longest chapter in John, and we're doing it today. Are you ready? Yeah, I was just kidding about the thrilled part. You're going to hang with me, right? The longest chapter in John, 71 verses. So we'll see who's still sitting here at the end, but just hang with me as long as you can, because we're going we're gonna to tackle it. And here in John, at the beginning of it, he covers the one miracle, the only miracle in Jesus' ministry that's mentioned in all four Gospels. There's only one miracle in his, not the resurrection, but in his ministry that every Gospel writer mentions. Boom, this is the one he starts off with. So are you ready, John, John 6? All right, yeah, not, not as ready. All right, let's go. So here's the deal we're going to be talking about. Today... Like in previous times, like in the first century, people are excited about Jesus. It's like Jesus has come home, but they're focused on, well, what can you give me? And Jesus comes and says, I'm bringing you eternal life, me, in me, eternal life. And they're like, well, are there any, are there, is there any stuff you can give me today? It's sort of how this plays out. Some only pursue Jesus for their own cause. So people keep seeking Jesus. We've already seen this some. We're going to see it again. They keep seeking Jesus, but they miss the point of the signs or the miracles that he's working. And they're called signs because, yeah, it's a miracle, but there's something deeper. It's a sign of something that they should see. So remember, miracles, supernatural events, they defy natural law, but they were signs in that they showed who Jesus really was. Here we go, Matthew, or Matthew, whoa, I'm already off. It's going to be a rough three hours here coming up. All right, John chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now, it's hard to get in the English, but this is continuous action on all these, uh, these verbs here. It's the crowds kept following because they continually saw the signs he habitually did. So he's, he's doing a lot of stuff, and they're following him. Verse 3. Then Jesus went up the, on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples... Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, 
was near. And it's kind of interesting. He mentions Passover's close. Remember the Passover? We talked about that before. That's God using Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. And so to them, that's like the 4th of July. And along with the Passover, a lot of times will be a lot of nationalistic kind of zeal, like, hey, we're a nation. God made us. You know, here's who we are kind of a thing. Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And by the way, barley loaves, not wheat rolls. It's, it's the, the poorest kind of grain to make bread from. This is a poor boy's lunch. The two fishes, probably pickled. It's almost just flavoring. And, and loaves, they're really you know like little rolls. This is a lunch for, for a kid. It's not Texas Roadhouse. This is barley loaves and a, and a little bit of pickled fish that you spread on it. But whatever. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. In number, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish. As much as they wanted. When they were filled... He said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves, which were left over by those who'd eaten. So many people are seeing, and we learn this from some of the other gospel writers, they're seeing Jesus do a lot of miracles, mainly healings, and Jesus has had a vibrant ministry leading up to this. And now he crosses over kind of to the far side, the eastern side, the Golan Heights side of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias or in the Old Testament, Kinnereth, which is just heart because that's the shape of the sea. So there, he's over there. He's re really doing that to get away from the people, to, to sort of have some time. John the Baptist has just been killed. And so he seems to want some time alone with his disciples but just when he finds a place where he thinks it's kind of out of the way, here comes the crowd because they're following him because they're desperate to follow him because of everything they've seen and they have needs maybe to be healed or whatever. And in doing that, they've kind of out, outpaced their resources. They typically, they don't have any food left that they've been carrying because they've been following Jesus. And so that's the situation. And, and it's interesting and, because now they're in a place where they can't buy food. Now, some people will look back on this and say, well, this really wasn't a supernatural miracle. The miracle happened when this little boy shared his lunch and that shamed and guilted everybody else who actually had food stashed away but didn't really admit it and didn't want to pull it out because people might ask them for something. So, but when the little boy shared his food, then they all shared their food and then that all happened that way. Yeah, and you know, so some people believe that. By the way, that is not what the eyewitnesses are telling us. Because the eyewitnesses are telling us something completely different. That they didn't have food, and it was a miracle. 
Others people, you know, other people say, well, they had this little bit of food and they pass it around, but people didn't really take anything. They just pinch off a little pinch and take it, just a tiny, tiny little bit. I don't know where you get the 12 baskets. You know, they would say it that way. But the eyewitnesses say people got as much as they wanted and were full. And the crowd knew it was a miracle, and we'll see that from their response. But here's the problem. Rather than see the sign, so the people will find out, they totally see this as a miracle. But rather than see the sign that the miracle represents, hey, by the way, who can do this? Who is this that he can create food? He can feed all of us with a sack lunch. What's up with that? That's the sign that they're missing. And we see that people were seeking Jesus for their own causes, for their own immediate physical needs. And so the crowd saw it as a clear miracle because we see their reaction, verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So here's the picture. There's 5,000 men on the hills going up to the Golan Heights on the east side of the Sea of Galilee where there's not as many cities and stuff. The crowd catches up. He feeds them. Passover's coming. There's a little nationalistic zeal happening. And then there's 5,000 men. 5,000, by the way, is the number of a Roman legion, but 5,000 men plus their families, so we're estimating 10 to 20,000 people that were fed, and then they realize, whoa, this guy is obviously from God. Passover's coming up. We've been waiting for the Messiah. He's the one. Let's make him king. There's 5,000 men here now. Let's march on Jerusalem. And they know they could march south out of Galilee, picking up more and more followers on the way, then into Judea, increase their followers, march on Jerusalem, have enough people to overthrow it and install Jesus as king. And Jesus wants none of that. And so, seeing their intention, he withdrew to be alone in the hills further up in the Golan Heights. And he sought to be alone with his father. He wanted to pray. And it's kind of ironic. Here, all this time, they're waiting for the king. All of Israel, waiting for the king. They sort of identify he's the one that could be the king. Let's make him the king. But they're completely missing it. Hey, this is the king that can give us what we want, a political kingdom. This is the guy that can give us food. Yeah, let's do it. He's, he's the answer to our prayers. And they're just seeing a sliver of who Jesus is. They're missing the whole point of the signs that he's been doing. So Jesus, at this point, he tells the disciples to go down to the lake, get in a boat, and sort of head over to the other north shore, Capernaum. And as they do that, Jesus, the disciples head that way, well, Jesus slips away from the crowd. In the meantime, all the crowd kind of sees the disciples get in this one boat and take off, but they notice also that Jesus isn't with them, but they can't find him. He, you know, he's gone. He's, he's slipped away. Verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. 
And after getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Which is one of the most commanded commands in all of Scripture. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, one thing that happens here that we're not talking about is another gospel writer says a whole thing happened with Peter about coming out into the water and all that stuff. So that, that's all there, but we're, we're not talking about that. And the disciples, what's going on is they see they're rowing. Some of these guys, half of them are fishermen. They've been on the lake all their life. And they see a human form walking on the water, and it freaks them out. And they don't know what to make of it, but then Jesus is like, hey, it's me. They, they hear his voice. They know his voice. Everybody's calmed down. He gets into the boat and arrives on the shore immediately. Verse 26, 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Notice, the crowd is still seeking Jesus. This is going to change throughout this chapter, that they're seeking him. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, which is not really an answer to their question. Jesus answered them and said in verse 26, truly, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He's saying, hey, you're, you're seeking me not for me, you're seeking me for, for what you can get out of it, for the things that you can get. And because Jesus doesn't do everything they're asking him to do, during this time in his ministry, we'll notice in this passage, we're not gonna focus on it too much, but they move from seekers to grumblers to quarrelers to deserters is kind of how this is all gonna play out. Why? Because they didn't get what they wanted from Jesus. So people are seeking Jesus for their own cause and they miss the point of his signs. And now Jesus explains how they're missing this but he uses kind of a deep theological argument. It's kind of hard to understand. This is why a lot of times pastors just preach on the 5,000, maybe the water, or use another guy to talk about Peter, or, you know, getting out of the boat. But this part gets skipped a lot because it just it's, it's, was offensive to them, and it's a little hard to follow for us, but we're going to dive in. So he explains what they're missing, and he does it with a theological argument, and it's right before Passover, they're celebrating God using Moses. All right, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God. And so, like us, they're going, what, what do we perform, what do we do that makes us right with God? How can we be saved by our own effort? What's the works that God wants us to do? That's what they're asking, which is really interesting answer, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, not works, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has 
whom he has sent. It's not works of God, it's the work of God. And the work of God, what you need to do, it's really not physical work. It's that you would believe in him, that's Jesus, whom he, meaning God, has sent. So the one work that God requires is believe in Jesus. That's put our faith, our trust in Jesus and him alone. That's it. That's the work. And that's not really even what we would call a work because it takes no physical action whatsoever. It's a heart thing. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then? Okay. They're like, okay. You're saying we need to trust you. All right. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Okay, most of these people, they're there with him because they've seen his signs already. And just the day before, he fed 5,000 people and most of the people in the crowd now were there and ate. And not, not only that, the disciples have seen him walking on the water, but that wasn't public. And so, what signs will you do to back up your claim? Well, that's all he's been doing. Signs, 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 signs. And it's ironic, because he's saying, I offer you, I have come to offer you eternal life. And they can't get beyond that to say, well, what have you done for me lately? You know, we ate yesterday, but what's on the menu today? So Jesus urges them to look beyond their physical needs to see the truth that the signs or the miracles that he does points to. Hey, can you, can you get out of today for a minute and sort of see this from a higher vantage point? But they want a more permanent sign. Here's what they say, verse 31. Our fathers, remember, almost Passover, so that's in their mind. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. That's a very loose quote from the Old Testament, but nonetheless true. But they're getting it wrong because they're assuming the he is Moses. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Kind of like the, the woman at the well, you know, always give me this water. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It's just what he's telling them. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now, this point touches on a theological issue that people still argue about today. 
which is called eternal security. How many have heard that term, eternal security? Which just, that just means, can a person become a true Christian and somehow lose their salvation? So that's the theological question that people ask. Can a person lose their salvation? From this passage, we might say, hey, there's a better question, and the better question is, can Jesus lose one of his children? Because Jesus says, he can't. And, and I gotta, if we just take a break here, you can imagine the disciples. I mean, they're there for the feeding. Wow, they tried to get away from the crowd, and now the crowd's bigger than ever. There's 10 to 20,000 people that have come to him in the hills of, of the Golan, you know, and, he, and they're just like, wow, there's a lot of people. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, there's this movement, we're gonna make him king, and the disciples might have been thinking, oh, finally, let's get on with this. And then Jesus is like, no, that's not the way this is down. Don't get any ideas. Sends them down to the shore of Galilee. Get away from this crowd. Get in a boat by yourselves and head to Capernaum. I'll catch up with you. And then Jesus slips away into the hills. But the disciples now, the next day, they're in Capernaum. He's in the synagogue teaching and they're like, wow, you know, hey, this, this is going great. The movement is really picking up some steam. And they're probably thinking, you know, Jesus, if you're a little less confrontational, that might help us out. You've got a good crowd here. Up to this point, things are going pretty good. Been a little testy. But hey, everybody's still with us. We can make this happen. And then Jesus continues his teaching and he continues to thin out the crowd. Probably much to the disciples' disappointment. Verse 40. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. When they hear this, they do not like it. Because this sounds like a claim to deity that he will raise them up. And so they don't like this teaching and then a murmur rises up through the crowd. Uh, you know, that's all happening. And this is when the seekers turned into grumblers, verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And so they reject Jesus's implied claims in his words. You know, they're saying, hey, they're in Galilee. Nazareth is in Galilee. So they're like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Come down out of heaven. We know, we know Mary is your mom and Joseph, who's probably dead at this point. We, know, we knew Joseph, who was your dad. Well, what's all this come down out of heaven? We, we know where you, grow up, where you grew up. And about this time, you know, the disciples are probably thinking, ah, this is getting a little loose. We're gonna lose him here. And Jesus is about to say it even more strongly. Here's what he says in verse 33. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. By the way, this touches on another theological issue that people argue about today, even more so than the last one, which is called predestination. And predestination is answering this question. Does God draw people to salvation? Does God do it? Does God draw people? Or does a person, does everyone have to decide, make a decision to believe? And Jesus in this passage says, right. Well, which one, this or that? And Jesus says, exactly. (laughs) Two parallel truths, not competing theology. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. It's really interesting. Remember, 40 years, they were supposed to go in the promised land. The leaders at the time in the wilderness, they went there, the spies sat out the land. 10 of them said, no, we can't do it. This is a mistake. And because of that, they rebelled against God. And so they wander for 40 years. God miraculously feeds them with manna six days a week, and they get double on Saturday. He does that for 40 years. But what, what happened? That adult generation all died. That was the whole point of the 40 years. And then a new generation rose up and they went into the promised land. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm offering you something better. Not manna, that, yeah, that, that gave them nourishment temporarily. I'm talking about something permanent, something spiritual, something more important, something better. Verse 50. This is the bread, he said, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they don't know it yet, but he's pointing to his death. His death is the only thing that will bring them the possibility of salvation. And his death is not just for the Jews, he says. I I will give the life for the world, he's saying, the whole world. This is a strong statement, and then there's different reactions that happen in the crowd. Again, this is in the synagogue, in Capernaum, that this is happening. Then the Jews began to argue with one another. They're quarreling, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so they're arguing about the mechanics of how can we eat his flesh that doesn't make any sense to us. I mean, is this cannibalism? I mean, this is forbidden by God. This is crazy. What's going on? It's weird. We don't understand it. And then Jesus is even more controversial. He just keeps piling it on and people keep turning away, going, I I just can't accept this. You know, and no doubt the disciples are thinking, hey, this would be a good time to wrap this service up. Maybe dial it back just a little bit. We still have most of the people with us. But Jesus doubled us down. And he starts saying things that are even more offensive. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh... I'm sorry, eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood. Okay, now we're talking about blood. You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's, it's even more offensive. The flesh was bad enough. Now they're talking about blood. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will, li will live forever. And so he's, getting, he's making this difference between, hey, and the man of those people died. This is completely different. They will not die like other people if they eat my bread. So these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum 59. And so this has caused a lot of problems. So churches view this whole teaching on the bread and the blood. But before I get there, I just want to point out, sometimes... Jesus teaches symbolically, right? We normally take things literally. We, we try to take them normally, how we would interpret it today. If it was written in a newspaper or something that we could believe. And then, so he's saying, as he puts that out there, some things he teaches symbolically, right? I, I'm not saying, okay. Remember, one time Jesus said, hey, if your hand offends you, cut it off. And he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We don't take that literally. If we did take that literally, we would all be pirates in here with patches on our eyes and hooks. On, you know, we don't take that literally, right? We got it? You, are you even following me here? You are following me. That's great. All right. So there's a difference between Catholics, for example, and Protestants on this issue. Because the Catholic Church would say, this is Jesus teaching about the sacrament of communion, the bread and the cup. And they would say he's teaching here transubstantiation. Transubstantiation means that the bread and the cup that you take at communion literally turns into the body and blood of Christ inside your body. It, and, and, and I think, according to, let's see, Catechism section 1376, I think it is, as I'm reading that, um, that is, where when the priest blesses it, it, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. It still smells like bread, tastes like bread, but when it comes into your body, it actually turns in to the flesh of Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of reasons that's, that's wrong. And here are the reasons. First of all, Jesus isn't talking about communion here. That hasn't happened yet. That doesn't happen until way at the very end of his ministry, so nobody would make that connection. Second, Jesus is speaking in a way way stronger than the language that he used at that future event, at the Last Supper, where he says, hey, this bread represents my body. Here he doesn't use that word body. He's saying, the bread is my flesh, not represents, the bread is my flesh, is what he's saying. And flesh is a lot more graphic term than body. And Jews are repulsed, by the way, at this. Especially then when he brings in the blood. They can't touch a dead body. They can't eat a human being. They can't do cannibalism. They're not supposed to ingest any blood as, as the Old Testament taught them. And so this is just grossing them out. Secondly, Jesus is not talking about a repeated eating. Communion is something that you do periodically. Not a repeated eating and drinking, but he's talking in the heiress. He's, 
This shows once for all action. You do this once. He keeps saying this over and over and over. And the manna they kept eating. Here you'll never thirst again. You'll never need to eat anything else. He's saying it's a one-time deal. Third, Jesus said those who do eat will have life. His language is absolute and he keeps restating it. It's impossible for us to think that the one thing that Jesus is saying here, hey, there's one thing that you need for eternal life, and that is to take communion. That's not what, it's impossible that Jesus is saying that. It goes against everything else he taught in the entire New Testament. And by the way, later in this passage, he's telling them, hey, my words are spiritual, not physical. And so Jesus is talking about his coming death, although they're not all getting that, but they know that the authorities are after him. They know John the Baptist has just been beheaded. So that idea is in their mind. Jesus is talking about his death, and only through him can we have life. And so the scene here is that many people are following Jesus. They've attached themselves to Jesus. They're following him around, and those people are called disciples. We sort of call them Little D disciples, not the big D disciples, which are the 12. But there's the 12, but then there's all these multitudes of people that are also sort of, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus too. I, I like Jesus. I'm with Jesus kind of a deal. But their allegiance is tested when his real claims become apparent. It's just tough stuff for them to swallow. And During this, the true believers are separated from the false believers. The people following Jesus for who Jesus is are still with him. But the vast multitude who are following Jesus for what Jesus could do for them today to meet their physical needs, they're bailing. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And when... when, when he says difficult, it means offensive. This is offensive. You know, we can't just keep hearing this. It's offensive. And the same thing happens today. People like the idea of Jesus. However, that meshes up in their own mind. But then they start reading the Bible, God's self-disclosure, and then all of a sudden, oh, Jesus talks about sin and hell and punishment. Oh, yeah, I'm not down for that Jesus. I'm down for the love Jesus with the, with the 70s flowers. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the Jesus I want. That Jesus is not real. Jesus is love. God is love. But God is also wrath and righteousness. So, It's all or nothing. It's he, how he presents himself, or you've got nothing. And then Jesus, you know, people are like, well, if it kind of goes along with my cause, then I'm good. But, But if the Jesus of the Bible doesn't sync up with my cause, I'm out. The gospel is greater than your cause. The gospel is the greatest cause. It continues in verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble, this offensive? 
What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if I just right now ascended back up to heaven? He's saying, that would offend you even more than anything I'm saying now. And then there's a watershed moment in Jesus' ministry. And it's in verse 66. By the way, kind of interesting. Do you want a side note? Yeah, three of you want a side note. In, in John 6, 66, we see this watershed deal. And most of you know, when the Bible was written, it was all written in the first century. All the New Testament was written in the first century, completed in the first century. But they didn't put chapters and verses on until the end of the Middle Ages. And they just added the chapters and verses so it'd be easier for us to find stuff in the Bible as we bind books together, especially as all the books were bound together of the New Testament. And then somebody makes sure this is in John 6, 66. Let's read it. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so here we go. They went from seekers to grumblers to quarrelers, as they argued, to deserters. And the question is, have you ever thought about bailing on Jesus? Have you ever got close to Jesus and thought, I want to do my own thing. Following him is not meshing up with what I personally want out of life right now. I want to do my own things, and, and Jesus saying, some of those things I shouldn't be doing. Or do you bail because Jesus is saying something hard? Probably not this passage, more offensive to Jewish people in the first century, but in other places. Yeah, I'm out. It happens all the time. Some people bail on Jesus' church. I mean, he founded the church. Some people just bail on church because it's not convenient. Let alone his hard truths. We must lift our eyes and see Jesus for who he is. We must respond just like the disciples do in this next few verses. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not go away you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter, usually the first to speak, Simon Peter answers him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter nails it. Us leave? And go where? Follow who? You're it. If not you, who? That's what all of us as true believers should be thinking. God, it's you. I don't have anything else but you. Every good thing comes from you. There is no other. And so we're challenged. 
in this weird passage of Scripture that they thought was weird in the first century, and it sounds weird to us now. We're challenged to not follow Jesus for what Jesus can do for us today. By the way, he makes our life way better every day. But that's not our motivation. Our motivation is to follow Jesus because of who Jesus is. Who he is demands our allegiance to him. Are you committed to following Jesus just for who he is and not for different physical needs that he can do for you? There's no other option. You see, as much as we get caught up in the world and our life and everything that's happened in the life of people we love, and maybe sometimes we, we lose people and all these things happen. And God, by the way, gives us grace every single day. And as much as he sustains us daily in our Christian walk with him, and he provides for all of our physical needs, I, I thank God for that every time I eat. Thank you, God, for providing for me. And many of you do too. Jesus didn't come primarily to meet our physical needs, right? Jesus came primarily to meet our spiritual needs so that the penalty for our sin could be paid for and we can have life in him forever and ever and ever. That's what he's offering us. And when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's saying, we have to ingest Jesus and who he is and that his sacrificial death on the cross applies to us. We need to get that all the way inside of us. And it will change our life from the inside out. Let's stand for prayer. You made it through. You're still standing Good job. Let's pray. And we're closing and dismissing. All right. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you that we can dig in and go through the book of John and chapter 6 and what it means. And Lord, we thank you for the teaching that gives us direction for life and gives us, more importantly, truth about how we can have eternal life. And it's not something that we earn or work for. It's just through putting our belief, our trust, our faith in Jesus, your son and him alone. We thank you for that greatest gift. In Christ's name we pray, amen.